that 50% of new moms experience intrusive thoughts around intentional harm. So that's like standing next to a window. What if I just threw my baby like out of the window? What if I just like threw my baby down the stairs? What if I like push my baby into the lake? Things like that, which are incredibly distressing. But the key takeaway with that is that it's these thoughts are evolution. We are wired to look for any potential danger that comes to our child, and then we have thoughts about that. Welcome to Raising Greatness, where we ask the questions every parent wants to know. I'm Ryan Adams, and on today's show, we have Caitlin and Chelsea, two registered psychologists, best friends, moms to four kids five and under, and the founders of Mama Psychologists. Join us as we discuss some some topics that few people are willing to talk about, like spontaneous preterm labor and what it's like to have a child born three months premature, managing postpartum anxiety and intrusive thoughts like intentional harm to your baby, overcoming mom burnout and how to take a sensory break to soothe your nervous system when you get overwhelmed. You'll also get bulletproof methods to successfully potty train your kids, stop tantrums, put your toddlers and young kids to bed for good, manage screen time, help kids and us parents better handle life transitions and so much more. Caitlin, Chelsea, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. We're so happy to be here. Awesome. Okay. You guys talk a little bit. Um, you, you, you coined this great uh, phrase and I'd like to maybe start there. You talk about, we focus so much on the birth of a new baby that we forget that there's been a birth of a new mother. Why don't we t- start there and maybe talk about what that means to you guys? Absolutely. That's a great place to dive in. And I know for myself, I, I really experienced this, that okay, there's all the preparation, the pregnancy, you have the baby shower, and then there's so much lead up. And then the baby comes and everybody is, oh my gosh, doesn't he look like it's dad? Oh my gosh, isn't he so big, right? All of this focus on new baby, which of course is is wonderful. But <laughs> there I was in my mesh undies, still looking incredibly pregnant and really struggling with, with a lot of pain, trying to breastfeed, trying to do like all, all the things because now I have a human being literally attached to me all the time. And there's just so much focus on the baby. And reflecting back, I don't know if anybody asked me like, how, how are you? How are you managing? How are you coping? And I think this was really highlighted when Meghan Markle was interviewed by, I can't remember who it was, maybe Oprah? Maybe not. I can't remember. But they said, well, how are you? And and she started crying because nobody, even in her position, had asked her, right? How are you? I've noticed that uh, myself. So as a new father, um, I've got a baby boy that's uh, four months old. And uh, that was all the experienced mothers around us um, really seem to focus also on the mom and how my wife was doing because they've been there themselves. And you're absolutely right that that's, it seems to be a little bit of, there's so much attention on the baby and rightly so, but you know, the mental health and and the physical health and just, you know, childbirth is traumatic. And it's kind of funny because we, we talk about it a lot where it's like, 
why doesn't anybody really talk about all the very traumatic aspects that that is childbirth? And it is not an easy process to go through. Trauma is, is a perfect word for it. And, and of course, there's all these uh, aspects that go along with it. Yeah, it is inherently, it's traumatic for the baby, right? They, they're there in their nice, warm tummy, and then boom, bright lights, sound. So it's traumatic for the baby. And it's also traumatic for the mom, right? That is giving birth to a human being, all the potential complications that could go along with that, a potential maybe C-section, but nobody really, really talks about how difficult it is, number one, on your body, of course, but number two, mental health-wise, because we know there's a huge drop in, in hormones and fluctuation of hormones right after baby comes into the world. And one thing that we put a question on our Instagram stories and our DMs blew up like crazy, but I experienced intense like shaking after giving birth and it felt incredibly uncomfortable. I did not want baby on me. And I was like, like, what the hell is this? Is this normal? What is going on? So I learned afterwards, because I had to do digging on my own, like, yes, it's it's normal. It's that adrenaline drop, that dump, but nobody warns you about it or or talks about it or says, this is why this is happening. So all these little bits and pieces that you don't really notice or talk about before. And then of course there's the the dad piece which <laughs> dads get left in the background even even more. And we see it in our private practice where yes moms experience birth trauma, but dads can also experience birth trauma just being there, maybe not knowing what's going on because often healthcare providers they can be good with telling mom what's going on, but <laughs> we see dad is in the background like what is happening? They may be like frozen in fear or what Whatever's going on, but can be super impactful for them as well. Well, I mean, not to the level of any sort of trauma that my wife went through, but I changed my first diaper, the very first diaper that gets changed. And nobody told me about this black tar that was in this oh. diaper. And so I thought, I'm like, I've seen this on TV. I can change a diaper. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, what is this sticky black tar? Uh, and I, I'm like, is this what diapers are going to be like? I'm like, I can't, it's not coming off of them. So, uh, you know, I, I joke in, in Jessa, I mean, but uh, it, there certainly is a transition um, with being a parent that, like, I remember not being a parent and, and parents would always tell you that, oh, it's the most beautiful thing ever. And it just, you won't know until you know. And like, you, mm -hmm. nobody can ever explain it. And you kind of like shrug it off. You're like, yeah, 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 whatever. Being a parent yeah. is beautiful. Then when it happens, you're just like, whoa, your entire life has changed forever. Mm -hmm. And with that, significant change obviously with any change there's a little bit of a birth and a death and so there's like a death to your old life a death to mm -hmm. your old responsibilities who you were and that can be a little bit um, hard to adjust to so I can certainly understand um, I, I was speaking with another another gentleman uh, Joseph Tito a couple of weeks ago and he had told me that 20% of men actually um, encounter some sort of uh, post um, like um, prenatal or yeah what saying here prenatal depression uh, basically that that comes from it and what we found in 2020, rates of postpartum depression and anxiety skyrocketed for women. There was actually research around that. And I would imagine that number would be similar for men as well. Makes sense. Okay, so... Chelsea, Caitlin, you both seem to have your own unique, um, I guess, birth journeys, which I'm assuming is is the genesis of you guys starting um, Mama Psychologist and, and all the work mm -hmm. that you're doing. So um, maybe, uh, Chelsea, if you want to tell people about uh, your experience, because it, it seems like it was different than Caitlin's. And I'm sure there's a lot of moms that um, have experienced something similar to you with the, the birth of your first child. 
Yeah, absolutely. So my son was a spontaneous preterm labor is what they call it. So we don't know why he was early, but he came at 27 and five, 27 weeks, five days. So he was considered, I didn't quite make it to the third trimester to kind of put that into perspective. Um, so we actually were in Foothill, so Calgary for, uh, three months after he was born. And then we were transferred back to, uh, Lethbridge for, uh, two, two-ish weeks after, before we got to go home. So that our journey into motherhood or my journey into motherhood was a bit of a, a big transition as well as for my, my husband as well. So he would probably consider birth to be quite traumatic on his end too. So what was some of the things that you leaned on to get through um, the experience? Because, I mean, obviously within those three months, there's a lot of unknowns. There's a lot of sleepless nights. There's just a lot of obviously stress and worry. Did you find anything that was helpful in in staying present, maybe not getting too far into a future reality that hasn't happened yet? Anything that you might be able to share with uh, other parents that might have um, a similar situation? Yeah, absolutely. I think NICU parents were actually a big support for us in that moment because it was kind of a strange time. We stayed at the Ronald McDonald house. And so we were surrounded by tired NICU parents who were going through really similar things. And so a lot of out of town families. So we were kind of displaced from our home and from our normal supports would have been our family and friends back home for so long that I think really having someone else kind of going through it at the same time was really helpful. And, you know, not that misery loves company, but you also get that like understanding. You can talk about your day, right. You still had those moments of connection, which I think were really important. Um, and then, you know, to be honest, I don't think everything really hit until we were home, like until afterwards, you know, we got home. It was, I guess at the beginning of the middle of 2020, we were finally home or like March, February, sorry. Uh, so the beginning and, you know, after that, when things change and, you know, we're isolated and all of these things. So it didn't really hit to, to you're just kind of in survival mode and trying to get through it. Yeah, incredible. But but it, your son's healthy and happy and everything. Uh, there's a happy ending at the end of the story. Yeah, he is a spicy, almost three year old now <laughs> who marches to the beat of his own drum and get, he's uh, teaching us lots of life lessons and how to be patient and calm and <laughs> all of those good things. Oh, that's wonderful. Beautiful. Um, and, and Caitlin, yourself, I, I know that you talk a little bit about the fact that, you know, once you became a mom, um, there was a little bit of um, just postpartum anxiety and, mm -hmm. and just balancing everything of, of, I think you talk about like just doing dishes or unloading the dishwasher and not having the ability to do that and just balancing everything. Uh, for those those moms and parents in a similar situation, um, what was your story and what Absolutely. were some of your takeaways? So my journey into motherhood was a little bit interesting. I was in the middle of a relationship breakdown, which added another layer of complexity. So baby, baby came and, and I was just trying to kind of get through, get through the pregnancy and get through that tough stuff and then kind of deal with my, my relationship within that, um, Baby came and postpartum anxiety hit me like a bus. And being a mental health professional, like I knew about it. I knew I had anxious tendencies. I knew it might be a little bit of a, like a higher risk given all the things I had going on in my life. But I 
was not prepared for the level of intensity of like sleeplessness, of just not wanting to leave my house, not wanting to like drive with baby for fear of like, oh my gosh, what if he like dies in the car seat and I'm driving? So it hit me very, very hard and I had to reach out for help, which included medication, which is 100% okay and very effective for some people. And then um, cognitive behavioral therapy was very, very helpful for that. But just knowing that even myself as a mental health professional, I, I still struggled and I knew the strategies, but it's something that you can't necessarily always 100% prepare for either. So, so obviously um, anxiety, I mean, not just parents uh, deal with yeah. anxiety, just being, it seems like being a human being, uh, anxiety oh, is just kind of comes along with, with, with the experience. Um, but you guys talk a lot and you have a great course about managing anxiety and intrusive thoughts. Can you maybe share with the listeners just some key takeaways or, or something that they can do for a, a mom that's feeling anxious is, is feeling it's like what you're saying that, uh, you know, potentially there's going to be harm to the baby that they're not going to be a good mm -hmm. mom or all these, I guess, Absolutely. less improductive thoughts that enter into our heads um, and how to deal with them. Yeah. So intrusive thoughts are one thing that we have found aren't really talked about, but they are incredibly common. So research shows that 95 to 100% of new moms, and I don't know what the stats are for, for dads because I believe only moms have been researched, but they will experience intrusive thoughts, which include accidental harm. So, okay, like I'm going down the stairs. What if I just like fall and baby tumbles down the stairs or often there's driving anxiety. What if we're driving and then we get into an accident and you can have often distressing images associated with that. But the other piece is that 50% of new moms experience intrusive thoughts around intentional harm. So that's like standing next to a window. What if I just threw my baby like out of the window? What if I just like threw my baby down the stairs? What if I like push my baby into the lake? Things like that, which are incredibly distressing. But the key takeaway with that is that it's these thoughts are evolution. We are wired to look for any potential danger that comes to our child. And then we have thoughts about that. And they do not mean that you want to cause harm to your baby or that you're thinking about that. These thoughts are anxiety thoughts and they're uncomfortable. But the key to that is do these thoughts distress you? If they do, then that's a good thing, right? That means that you do not want to harm your baby. It's problematic when you have these thoughts and it's like they don't distress you. But for a majority of moms, they have these thoughts. They're incredibly upsetting. And then they have a lot of guilt and shame. It's like, do I want to harm my baby? Well, well no, these thoughts are incredibly common, but people just don't talk about it because there's that level of shame, that level of like, if I express this thought to anybody, will I get my child taken away? If I tell my doctor I'm experiencing this, are they going to call child and family services? So no, it'll be a conversation that will be had about anxiety and intrusive thoughts. So that's really a big part of our mission is just educating people about intrusive thoughts because we've run mom therapy groups and they are incredibly common. And we find that people are relieved once they can actually say what they're experiencing mm -hmm. and knowing that, okay, number one, I don't want to harm my child. Number two, this is very, very normal. And number three, like other people experience it. 
That's fascinating to, to think that there's an evolutionary um, mm-hmm. trigger for these intrusive thoughts where it's you're almost getting flashes of dangers that could happen to your baby, even if it's you that's on the other end of them, yeah. in a way to protect your child from those, to become aware that, oh, maybe I should shut that window because a baby could fall out, out the yeah. window. Um, and then the idea that, yes, it's definitely normal. Uh, in our household, um, we have kind of like a running joke where um, when one of us is taking care of Chase, um, we kind of, and we're kind of at our wits end a little bit mm-hmm. we just say he's not fun anymore and then we just hand him off to, to, to the other parent and then the other parent uh you know it takes him and then basically plays them and, and we know that if somebody kind of says that it's half in joking but it also is like a, a little bit of a you know a cry for help that hey listen like it's uh you know yeah. I, i'm at my i'm doing all i can do so what about um in a case where maybe um there's a parent that doesn't have the support structure around them doesn't have the community is there any um suggestions on how they can maybe take a step back collect themselves especially when they may be um going to a dark place or or in a place with their intrusive thoughts that they feel like may overwhelm them yeah absolutely so first and foremost we always encourage people to know what resources are in their community so what can you access if you really need something like write down your doctor's office number and like stick it on your fridge or you know is there a public health nurse or a community center or anything like that so being aware of what's just available those kind of resources but then we always want to teach parents to what we call is like a basic needs check because what often goes out the window the first thing um is taking care of your own basic needs right you're you're attuning to your child you're paying attention you're doing all of these things to take care of them and meet their needs but you're not actually paying attention to yours. So the really quick three things to ask yourself, am I hungry? Am I tired? Am I clean? So, you know, can I get a small snack, a drink of water? Can I, like, you know, am I uh, reacting from a place of sleep deprivation? And, you know, I haven't had any rest. And number three, obviously, am I clean? Can I change my clothes? Can I shower? What are something that I can do to make myself feel better? Even if it's like still holding your baby and brushing your teeth, right? Finding these moments where you can still care for yourself if you don't have the resources or the support um, to pass the baby off or do those things, right? And it's just being mindful of that because no, it's not going to be earth shattering or groundbreaking, but we want that foundation there that, hey, you know, you still need to pay attention to those things, even though they seem really small or really simple. It's not so simple when you become a parent. That is fantastic advice. I'm just going to reiterate that. Am I am I tired or am I hungry first? Am I tired and am I clean? And I know that in my own experience that a shower of, for, for my wife seems to reset everything. Um, and it's amazing the therapeutic benefits of just like five minutes to yourself to just kind of recollect and then right back into the game. So uh, that's fantastic. You guys also talk a little bit about overcoming mom burnout. Now, I'm assuming that checklist would also apply to that. Or is, there, is there anything else that you guys can share when it comes to helping moms not get burnt out? Yeah, absolutely. So another big one, just as like kind of under the same umbrella is sensory breaks. So being a parent is stimulating, right? Especially when you're burnt out, the noise, the sound, the touch, all of that can feel really overwhelming and contribute to that feeling of burnout. So we talk a lot about sensory breaks or paying attention to your nervous system. And so we want to calm our nervous system down. We want to relax. We want to come to a place where we can, you know, get our rational brain thinking a little bit better, which is sometimes hard to do, right? When you have, if you have more than one, there's lots of noise. If you have one that's really loud or a colicky baby or all of those things, right? They can just add to that overwhelm. And so we talk a lot about sensory breaks and sensory breaks are things, think again, think of the five senses, right? Is there anything I can do that's soothing for my system that would fall under that? So, you know, 
engaging your sight, paying attention to five things around you, you know, listening to the sound, getting in comfy clothes, having a drink of water for taste, right? Those kind of things where you want it to be soothing for your nervous system. And just to add onto that, I know for myself, when we get into the door and the kids are screaming and I'm thirsty or hungry, we want to notice like whose need is the hungriest? Because sometimes it's like, you know what, you you can cry for a few minutes. I need to like get a drink of water or a drink of juice because my blood sugar is really low. So it's okay for your kids just to like, you know what, cry for a little bit while you attend to your own needs if you're at that point, right? Because we want to take care of ourselves. And if we're hangry or super thirsty, we won't be effective. There, I'm reminded of, um, you know, in, in the airplane where, where they say, you know, always attend to your mask yeah. first, you know, put your mask on first, your oxygen mask before, uh, you know, your, your kids, because, um, you know, you're no good to anybody if you're passed out. So it's, uh, but, but it's not easy. It's not easy for parents, not easy for mothers to kind of prioritize their own self-care when they've got this little human um, that's looking to them for everything. And, and you've got that incredible uh, attachment and uh, yeah, just that desire to, uh, to take care of them first and foremost. So, you know, it makes, it makes sense. Um, Okay, there's a lot that parents struggle with here. Um, and you guys create a lot of resources to help parents through. One of them is potty training. So for those parents right now that are uh, getting to that stage where they're looking to train their children for potty training, what kind of tips or tricks or what can they expect? And do you guys have any advice to kind of guide them through the process? Oh, absolutely. We just finished potty training my girl. So <laughs> it, it's an adventure. The biggest one is preparing yourself, your emotions. It, it, it's a frustrating period, right? There's going to be accidents. There might be accidents on the floor. It's mentally preparing yourself that, okay, this, this might be a little bit tricky, but knowing that I can manage it. I can manage tough situations. That's for parents. For the kids, we want to prepare them by modeling, by play and by reading books. So books are always a really good start. My daughter has a Paw Patrol one. She loves Paw Patrol. So we read about, okay, the Paw Patrol kids are potty trained. So that was a really good starter. Number two, we had a travel potty that she was able to put her doll on. So she was able to incorporate potty training into her play. And with kids, play is magic. Play is where the real learning happens. It's how they incorporate things from their own life. They play out stressors, problems. Play is magical. So we always want to, you know what, give them a little potty, give them a dolly, even if it's a boy, whatever, right? They can potty train their toys and have them incorporate toys into that process. And then number three, encourage them to like okay when you feel that like urge in your tummy if you feel the pee like trickle down we want to run super super fast to the potty there's a bunch of different methods some are the naked potty training some are not it's completely preferential um but we also want to be mindful not to make any negative associations. So it's not getting angry if there's any accidents because accidents a hundred percent will happen. 
but it's just encouraging them to notice their body, notice what they feel, and to run super, super fast to the potty. So making a little bit of, of a game out of it, connection. So we want to make it like a positive, a positive process. That's great. Um, okay, so potty training is one, one thing. Um, there's also putting your child to sleep and making sure that they sleep through the night and all the uh, joys and trials and tribulations that go along with that. Is there any suggestions? And, and I'm assuming that this, this also has to do with the various stages of, you know, stages and ages of your child. Uh, but maybe you guys can speak a little bit to when those sleep struggles kind of come up in, in your guys' experience working with parents and um, some ways to kind of combat that. Yeah, absolutely. So when we look at bedtime, we have to remember, first and foremost, this this is often a really long period of time where we're not connecting with our kids, right? They're there. And often as they get older, they get more aware of this, they realize, hey, mom, or dad, or my parent isn't here. And um, so that's when you're going to get sometimes that like fight back, right? They they're stalling the getting out of bed, the wanting a drink of water, the having to pee for the 15th time, the I'm hungry, the, you know, all of those things. Right. And depending on what kind of bed your child is in, they might be actually physically getting out of bed. If they're still in a crib, then they might just be yelling or crying or feeling emotional. So there's lots of things that you can kind of look for. Obviously, every child is different. And again, as you said, ages and stages, right? Where are they at? And so, you know, for the toddler age, one of our favorite strategies is bedtime tickets. And so this can be a really good way to continue to connect with your child. So you, you know, you give them like two pretend bedtime tickets. Sometimes you have like real tickets. And so if they try to get out of bed, you can say, okay, well, you can use one of your tickets to get a drink, go to the bathroom you know, those kind of things. And then um, you just kind of put them back into bed and support them back into that transition again. Interesting. So it's, it's when I first heard uh, bedtime tickets, I was uh, seeing you guys in a role of an authority, like almost like a police officer issuing a ticket, like, oh, no, no, you got out of bed, here's a ticket. But this is being used almost like a hall pass where you have two times that you can get out. Is this, are you going to use one of your times now? Um, and then they have two times every night that they can actually use one of their tickets to to leave the crib or their bed to go explore, go to the bathroom or eat or whatever it is. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And my one that I just like, I'm using it this week. We just transitioned my girl to a big girl bed and it's the bedtime hug check-in. So we had a big <laughs> issue with her crawling out of her crib and leaving the room and just like stalling and wanting just more hugs, more this, more that. So I go in, we tuck her in, get her all cozy, and I give her a hug. And I say, I'll be back in two minutes, and I'll give you two hugs. So then I come back. Sometimes it's not always two minutes, because two minutes is a long time to wait when you're three. And then I come back, and I give her two hugs. So I'll be back in a few minutes, and I'll give you three hugs. So then, again, I wait, I wash my face, and then I go back, and I give her three hugs. And so on and so forth until they fall asleep. Number one, it's connection. And number two, they will be likely to stay in their bed because they're like anticipating that you're coming back for more hugs. So we have found great success with this. And, and it's fun. She, she loves it. She's like, okay, three hugs next time. And that has been our number one strategy that I've been using for, for my little girl. 
So you're teaching children counting, you're teaching them patience, you're teaching them delayed gratification, and then you're exhausting them through anticipation. Yes. (laughs) That's fantastic. Yes. And we've posted this on our Instagram stories and people be like, how many hugs tonight? (laughs) And it's like, last night was like six or seven, but the couple (laughs) nights before it was just like three. I go in for like number three and she'd be zonked. And I guess, yeah, so, you know, a bad night would be like 10, 12, and and your goal is to get them down to like one to two, and it's a little bit of a game yourself. Absolutely. And it gives you time, too, right? It's like, okay, I can go, like, do the dishes or wash my face, right? So I'm not, like, kind of lying with there, because that can sometimes be something that people get into. It's like, I have to lie with them until they fall asleep, and I'm there for 20 minutes. And I know for myself, I'm busy. I don't always have the time. If I did have the time maybe I would lie with her but I don't always have that time I don't think many parents have the time right now we're we're pulled in so many different directions that you know we want to spend as much time and as much connection but you know it's I'm even noticing that with my four-year-old or four-month-old where it's like when he sleeps on me I'm like I don't want to put him down like it's so cute like he's like sleeping on me but then I realize I'm really useless I can't do anything so it's a it's a transitioning to uh you know being useful while also still having that connection so uh, that's great advice Okay, tantrums. This is something that every mom is like just every parent in general is just piping up to be like, okay, so what do we do when our child is acting up is throwing a tantrum? Uh, what, what can we do in these situations? Yeah, so for tantrums, of course, know that they're normal doesn't mean that your child is bad or you're not a good parent, like they're just so developmentally appropriate. If you think of adults, well, some adults still tantrum, but we have the language to say, I'm upset. I'm frustrated. And then we also have the coping strategies to go for a walk or take a drink. Whereas kids, they just don't have their prefrontal cortex. The thinking, organized, rational part of your brain is it's not online until they're about three to five-ish. That's when it starts to become more online. And especially tantrums completely goes offline. They flip their lid and essentially they're just like little wild animals, right? Acting on all of these like angry impulses. So number one, we want to get them to, to a smaller space because, you know, if it's in a kitchen or a living room, then there's just so much space for them to like flop around, scream, run, thrash, but a smaller space allows them to be more contained. And then they're in their room, they're safe, they can be upset. So a couple things where you can stay and you can say like validate that emotion until it kind of passes. Some parents find it too emotionally like overstimulating or overwhelming to stay in the room. So you leave and you say, I'm going to come and check in on you in a couple minutes. I'm going to put like a bottle of water next to your door. But basically, we want to validate the emotion and the tantrum will pass. The more that you validate the emotion over time, the less the tantrum will be in intensity and duration. So when you're validating the emotion, is is there usually a root cause to why the child is acting up um, as opposed to them just being wild animals is there usually like like for those problem solving uh, parents out there they're like okay there's got to be a cause there's got to be like downstream or upstream there has to be some reason for this is that usually the case or sometimes it's just they're just wild and crazy well we want to look at and get curious too right like what is going on right are they tired 
Are they hungry? Are they thirsty? Are they overstimulated? Usually it's one of those four. I know for my kids, like tantrums come when they're overtired. So we usually know that, okay, there, there is a reason for the tantrum. And can we offer them something, right? It's like, okay, I think we need to have something to drink. I think we need to have something to eat. And often, sometimes people are like, well, we don't want to reward the behavior. And it's not rewarding the behavior at all. If you think of just human beings, what is soothing, right? Having a drink, having something to eat. It's that chance to just slow down and connect. It's kind of hard to tantrum and eat a granola bar at the same time. But offering that, right? Offering that hug if that's what they need. Offering some some deep pressure, right? Some hugs, some squeezes. For some kids that are more sensory seeking, they love weighted blankets. And one thing that that I always like to use, it's like, okay, where, where's your tank at? Where's your gas tank at? It's like, it's really, really low. Okay. Do you need some big squeezes and big hugs to fill it up? And that also adds some connection and some playfulness too. So we always want to look where can we add some playfulness because that can break up the tantrum as well. And it's knowing that it's not rewarding the tantrum, but it's validating the emotion and, and shifting it as well. Do you find that um, that children are aware enough to share where their cup is at or where their tank is, like how full their their, their cup or their tank is, is currently at? It's something that you have to do repeatedly, right? Anything like anything else with practice. Sometimes kids are just in a state where they're just oof, 10 out of 10 and they're not at a place where they can readily use their words. So we want to watch for a couple of things. Usually when we know the tantrum is coming to an end, you will see like this big sigh. And that's when you know that, okay, their thinking brain is coming back online. Their system is a little bit lower. And that's when we can kind of go in and say, do you need a hug? Mommy really, really loves you. It's kind of hard right now. So we always want to end with... We know their goodness and that we love them and we believe in them because we, we never want our kids to have that narrative of, I'm a bad kid. I, I did something wrong. Right? So we want to always emphasize that connection and that, that love that we have for them when the tantrum has kind of come to a close. It sounds like um, what you're saying is separating the emotion from the child and, and allowing them to separate that emotion mm -hmm. from the child. So like you're addressing the emotion, not necessarily the the behavior or the child. Um, and, mm -hmm. and that might be nice to kind of disassociate. You know, it's not an angry child. They're just having an you're angry having, emotion, it sounds yeah, like. Yeah, you're having a hard time. And one strategy that that I also use a lot with my my kids is how big is your mad? Is it this big? Is it that big? Is it the size of the room? Is it the size of the house? And I love that because you can have fun with it, right? It brings in a little bit of playfulness and it also brings their logical brain. Right? If they're starting to go, you can see it start to build. It's like, oh, how big is your mat? And they have to stop and they have to think. And it's like, it's as big as the table. It's as big as 
the house. It's as big as the city, right? You can have lots of fun with that. And then it's like, what do you think we could do to make your mat a little bit smaller? Even like that much smaller. And again, it's eliciting that problem solving part of their brain too. And then it's a strategy coming from them. So they're more likely to use it as well. I love that. And, and I'm thinking, um, I can't remember the um, the book, but it had something to do with um, police negotiators. And um, one of the strategies that they use is when somebody's in a heightened state, is super like maybe has a knife at somebody's throat or is in a super just heightened emotional state, yeah. that one of the strategies is to ask them interesting questions like, what 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 time is it um five minutes before 7 30 yeah like it's just something random where just all of a sudden it breaks them it, out i guess it activates it, that prefrontal it, cortex yeah. and gets them out of that reptilian emotional fight or flight kind of Absolutely. brain and it's, it's funny that you can use those same type of uh, police police negotiating tactics on You're little right? toddlers to uh <laughs> isn't it so interesting but it just it takes them out of that like red zone and it's sure. like oh yeah how how big is it Right. So that's one that I use with my kids all the time. How fascinating. Chelsea, anything that we're missing here? No, Caitlin's done a really good job. The only thing I think I'd probably add is one thing that I found just for my little guy. He's kind of what we call a highly sensitive child. So he just feels things bigger, right? It's just sensitive. What we mean in this term is, you know, how sensitive are they to sensory stimulation? And so his feelings are big. He feels deeply. He, you know, when he's overwhelmed, he like kind of gets not ex well explosive, I guess maybe is the best way to put it. But, you know, and so for him, the really, the thing that helps us deescalate him the most is um, validating the emotion, sitting at his level. So eye level, and then obviously that touch, like he's kind of a touchy kid. So just those big hugs, those tight squeezes and trying to get him to pay attention to his surroundings. So now what he'll say is like, mom, I'm sad. <laughs> like It's like, okay. Like, so just giving him that, those tools to kind of start practicing that language. He's um, almost three as well. So he, he doesn't always get it right. It's either I'm mad, I'm scared or I'm sad. Um, but, you know, just like paying attention, like knowing kind of that temperament about him and knowing, you know, he is a more highly sensitive kid that we just have to be mindful of the surroundings and trying to pay attention to those kind of external triggers that we can. So a highly sensitive child, um, all the things that you, you talked about, fantastic. So get on their level, validate the emotions, uh, work through the emotions with them. I'm assuming it's like anything that there's a spectrum. So the other side of the spectrum would be a, like a non-highly sensitive child. Like what would that look like? Somebody that's just kind of like nothing phases them. They just kind of like go go through. Like what would be the two sides of the spectrum and, and what would a child look like that would fall on each side? Yeah, when when you put it, there's not really a like an alternative. Sometimes we look at more like temperaments. Like, so are they? Um, I don't the the term I've heard coined was like dandelion or orchid, right? These you know these orchids, they need a lot of nurture. They need a lot of you know fostering these skills and growth. And you know they are kind of more responsive to the environment. Where dandelions kind of like go with the flow. They're a little bit more hardy in some ways. Like they don't get so reactive. And so I don't know, Caitlin, do you know if there's a specific term on the opposite end of highly sensitive kid? Or that's just what comes to mind for me. It would be a dandelion and orchids, right? So there's a really good, um, oh, I can't remember what it's called, but it's a researcher. And he is a professor, um, a doctor, married, kids, very successful life. And then he looked at his sister and she had significant mental health struggles. Um, 
lots of like domestic abuse, like drug abuse. And it's like, we were both like, we were very close in age, raised in the same environment with the same kind of like really harsh upbringing. What, what happened there? Why was I like kind of so successful? And why did my sister struggle so much? And it comes down to temperament. He was a dandelion. He was able to thrive in that environment. It's like, you know what? My parents are terrible, but I'm still able to go about life and be successful. So like dandelions, right? They will grow in sidewalk cracks. Whereas his sister was an orchid, needed that tender, like that nurturing environment, which she did not get and subsequently was not good for the rest of her life. So that would that would be what we look at when we look at highly sensitive kids and kids that aren't highly sensitive. So research has also shown that yes, highly sensitive kids, they can do wonderful, amazing things if they have the right environments. And alternatively, they can also struggle significantly if the environment is not conducive or nurturing to their needs. Interesting. Orchids and, and dandelions. Yeah. It makes sense. Absolutely. Um, one of the last questions I have for you, for you ladies is, is screen time uh, and dealing with, you know, the day and age that we live in right now. You mentioned Paw Patrol. Like it's there's no getting a, a, around this. What are some strategies to help either limit screen time to, to, to help them not get overly stimulated, which would obviously have a trickle down effect to bedtime and all the rest of that? How do we tackle screen time effectively? Yeah. That is actually, yeah, one of our best sellers too, because it's so pervasive in our day and age, right? You can't get away from it. We live in a different generation than what we were raised in, right? We didn't have phones that were able to play shows. It It's a different world. And number one is accepting that, okay, we live in a tech world and that's, that's okay. That's where our world is going. But then we can set the boundaries for our kids and our kids. They don't always have to like it, but we are in charge of the boundaries. So number one, I would say it's looking at what are your family values? Some families are like, nope, we do screen time once a week. Some families are, we do screen time like every day around like the witching period, like four to five. It's really looking at your own boundaries and what you find okay. But then on the other hand, it's knowing that Screen time will not cause ADHD. Screen time will not cause autism. There's a lot of fear mongering about screen time, but research has shown that no, it won't cause those disorders. There's one study that found it has to be around seven hours a day of screen time will increase the risk for ADHD in 10% of the participants. So, I mean, you have to watch a lot of screen time to cause any like detrimental harm. So number one, it's giving yourself permission. Like screen time can be a tool. It can be a tool. We don't want it to be number one, a babysitter, but it can be a tool. And are the shows that they are watching is there connection? Is there creativity within these shows? So in our workshop, we have these 35 approved shows that are really good in terms of the quality, the content, it's age appropriate, it's not overstimulating. And when we talk about overstimulating, it's all the colors, it's all the flashes, it's kind of content that's a little more violent, right? It's just when 
you see your kid watching this, it's like they're a zombie, right? You see their eyes glaze over and you call their name and it's like, there's nothing. They're, they're gone, right? They're very overstimulated by it. So those shows we want to limit, but there are other shows that are much, much better, right? Shows that have more like natural movements, like less flashy colors, right? Where they model like age appropriate stories, that involve kindness, that involve connection, right? So like anything else, there are shows that it's like, oh, that's not so good. And there are shows that are really, really good. As humans, we learn through stories. And Absolutely. one of the most effective tools to share stories is, you know, TV and, and movies. And uh, so it's, it's it's a conundrum in the sense that, you know, you there's a lot of fear mongering mm-hmm. around screen time. Um, you know, there's that funny, I guess, um, Jimmy Kimmel does a, a bit where he has parents unplug Fortnite from their like toddlers wow. and from like, you know, their young kids and just watching these kids react like just vicious, vicious wow. wild animals. Um, and that overstimulation that you're talking about now, obviously these aren't toddlers per se, but uh, there is, is certainly a happy medium. And uh, you know, it's, it's like any sort of tool. It can be used for good or it can Absolutely. be used for, you know, not so good. So just, just to be aware. Absolutely. Finally, um, Transitions, you know, a lot of kids now, as they're getting older, you're transitioning them from, you know, daycare to school or going from, you know, pre-kindergarten to kindergarten. What what sort of advice can you give to parents for one, how to handle that process for themselves, as well as how to make that easier as a transition for kids? Yeah, so um, I'll start with parents and maybe Caitlin can take over for the kids. Um, So in terms of parents, it is a hard transition for parents too. We hear about it all the time, right? Returning from mat leave. you know, having your kid go to preschool or daycare for the first time, kindergarten, all of these milestones are can evoke that emotion in parents. We hear a lot of, you know, those that mixture of emotion, right? Feeling grief, feeling excitement, you know, it's a big, it's a big step. And so one is allowing yourself to have those emotions. Those dual emotions can be there. You can have those sad moments or being like, oh, my little baby's growing up or, you know, whatever that means, but you can also be excited, excited for that, what that means for them, excited for you know, all of those things they get to do and learn and, you know, just the the school environment. And so giving yourself permission is a big one. Number two is knowing that it's going to be a transition for you and for them. So knowing, you know, it might not be as smooth and it likely won't be as smooth as you're going to hope it's going to be. Some kids need a bit more time or a bit more transitions when we're looking at, you know, going, going into that environment. So it can be hard, you know, tantrums can increase, emotions can increase, right? There can be that separation anxiety. So a lot of things can come out and that can be triggering for a parent, right? That can feel overwhelming. You can feel kind of stuck. Like I have to go to work. You have to go to this, this place. And, and, you know, I don't, don't really have time to do all these things. So knowing that ahead of time and, and allowing yourself to kind of prepare for that and what that could look like. So whether that's, you know, allowing yourself to have like a deep breath or um, doing some of those basic needs stuff that we had talked about earlier, kind of allowing yourself so you can stay emotionally regulated when going into these environments, if that's something that might happen. Absolutely. And knowing that it's very difficult for kids too, but there are techniques to make it easier. So number one, we see this all the time. Start a kindergarten, first day of the month at daycare, right? The new parents where they linger, don't linger. So we want to make the separation short and sweet because that implies that, okay, I'm confident in leaving you with this person. I love you. I will see you after third snack, something like that. So highlight next point of connection. 
Now, is it still okay if I go in the bushes and cry and still watch <laughs> watch him as he goes to school? Absolutely. That's okay. You just got to be out of sight. You know what? <laughs> out of go sight. in okay, your car good. and just ball. That's totally <laughs> fine. <laughs> very, very common. It's it's so hard. Number two, have a little goodbye ritual. Some people do like a funny wave. Some people do a little song or a little funny dance. And another one that I've had clients of mine do is they make, they have bracelets. So they have a bracelet, their child has a bracelet. And whenever you're missing mommy, just hold the bracelet or touch the bracelet. Also, if you don't have time to go get matching bracelets, you can literally draw a heart on your hand, draw a heart on your child's hand, and say, like, touch the heart whenever you like miss mommy. Right? We just want to ground them to some point where it's like, oh, I'm missing mommy. But if I like touch this or hold this, then I can feel her love. Beautiful. Beautiful. Chelsea, Caitlin, a wealth of information. Uh, MamaPsychologist.ca. You can find out so much more information there. You guys do workshops, one-on-one training. You have a bunch of great courses that go in depth with a lot of the stuff we talked about. You know, potty training, sleep struggles, tantrums, screen time, on and on. I know a big uh, thing that you guys are working on right now is the managing anxiety and intrusive thoughts. If people want to find out a little bit more about you, if they want to be able to connect with you, what's the best way for listeners to do that? Absolutely. Our biggest platform is of course our Instagram. So we can be found just at Mama Psychologist. We are also venturing on TikTok and and Pinterest. So we are on multiple platforms. And then of course, um, momspsychologist.ca, that is our website where you can find us and find our resources as well. Thank you so much. Wealth of information. Thank you. Really appreciate the time. Thanks. Thank you for having us. Thank you.